0: Uh, If you've been with, well I've been with you a couple of Sunday mornings and uh, I think maybe a Sunday evening in the past and we've looked at Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we're going to look at chapter 3 this evening. This is God's word, we're reading from verse 1, we're going to read the whole of the chapter. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, ancestors, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. If we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his word. you take an offering? Before we sing again, maybe we will pray for our intercessory prayer and pray for the work that's going on and pray for different parts of the world where there's problems and troubles tonight. Let's pray together. Many years ago, I was doing some outreach in the village of Hamilton's Bourne and I met a man who was clearly under the influence of alcohol. I got into conversation with him, it was a Friday night late, and eventually I said to him, if you want to get to heaven, you need to be saved. I was about 18 at the time and he said, he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, son, I was saved 40 years ago and I don't need to be saved again. I've was remembered that and he was basically just repeating what he had been taught under the popular slogan of once saved, always saved. Those who believe in that slogan generally give the impression that anyone who claims to become a Christian, to receive Christ, that they are to be regarded as a genuine believer. They're safe for time and for eternity, even if they backslide. And even if they never walk with the Lord again, they will miss out on the blessings of this life, but they can never be lost eternally. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Or is that a misinterpretation of what Scripture teaches? I've got your attention. It's great. In the passage we're looking at tonight, if you open your Bibles at chapter 3, you'll see in verse 6 it says, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope which we boast. And again in verse 14 it says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. You can see that there's an if clause in both of these verses. Can we reconcile this teaching of once being, once saved, always saved, with what these verses are saying? What is this if clause meaning? So, we come to study this passage tonight. Let me remind you briefly of the context and the reason why the writer is writing this letter. He's addressing the believers who had a Jewish background and because they had trusted in Jesus as their long promised Messiah, they were shunned by their community, they were regarded as traitors to their religion and life was very difficult for them. And furthermore, there was the threat of renewed persecution and the future looked very bleak for some of them, it might even have meant that they lost their lives. And so some were wondering... About going back to their old religion and walking out on Christ and their newfound faith. And the writer is aware of this and he's seeking to persuade them not to go back. Don't give up on Jesus Christ. In the opening chapters he has shown them that Christ is far superior to the angels. The angels were big in Judaism. But Jesus is far superior to them. The angels are basically only messengers. But Jesus is the son. And the saviour of sinners. And so we come to chapter 3. And it, <clears throat> where we have these two verses that I've just quoted to you. It begins with verses 2 to 6 showing us. That Jesus is also far greater than Moses. The angels were up here. As far as Jewish uh, thought was concerned. Moses was up here also. He was the greatest man that ever lived according to the Jews. He was revered in Jewish history because he was chosen by God to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. He was miraculously preserved at birth. He had a noble upbringing. He was the greatest prophet with whom God directly communicated. He received the law from God and he delivered it on tablets of stone to the people. He was their historian. He wrote the first five books of the Bible Tells us he was the humblest man that ever lived. Moses was truly great. He worked for the people. And he prayed for the people. And the writer of Hebrews acknowledges this. Look at verse 2. He was faithful in all God's house. Look at verse 5. He was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Testifying to what would be said in the future. Moses was faithful. If they hadn't been faithful, Pharaoh would never have heard God's word. The Israelites would never have been delivered from Egypt. They would have never experienced the crossing of the Red Sea. They would have never reached the borders of the Promised Land. But Moses was faithful. And now the writer wants to show these people that Jesus also was faithful. In doing the work that God sent him to do. If Jesus of course had failed. No sinner would ever have been saved. But he was faithful. And he fulfilled all the purposes of God. And what the writer is saying in verses 2 to 6. Is that Jesus is even greater than Moses. For two reasons. Number one. Moses is just a servant. But he's the son. And the second reason Moses is part of the building, but Jesus is the builder of the house. And so we come to verse six, the key verse that I was reading to you early on. And we are his house. We are his family. He's speaking to the, the these Jewish believers who've come to put their trust and faith in, in, in Christ. We are the house, we are the believers, we are the congregation. Uh, We are now part of God's family. Just as Moses was part of the house in the Old Testament era, now we are part of the house in the New Testament era. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which he boasts. And again in verse 14, even clearer, we've come to share in Christ. We're part of his family. If we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the first Now what I'm going to say here is I'm going to say what I believe the scripture teaches and then I'm going to show you it from what we're looking at in scripture. I want to suggest to you that these verses and the Bible, they do not teach what's commonly known as once saved, always saved. But what these verses and what all of the New Testament teaches is what we call the perseverance of the saints. There's a difference. Once saved, all is saved, as I said at the beginning. If anyone makes a profession of faith, they're to be regarded as true believers, and therefore they're saved for time and for eternity. That's different to a person who's saved, and they persevere until the end. It says in verse 14, If we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the first. What was the confidence they had at the first? It was trust that Jesus was their saviour. They trusted him. They put their faith and trust in him. And what the verse is saying. You must continue to the end with that same trust. Of course true believers can have wobbly times. You can have ups and downs. Peter. Remember Peter. He went astray. I just imagine you standing beside Peter that day. when, When the wee girl came up to him and said. Are you one of the lords? And he said No. He started to curse and say, what, what would you have thought? Would you have thought, well, that boy can't be a Christian. Or, he couldn't be the Lord's. And you would be right to think that. But we have other parts of scripture which go on to tell us that he was restored. And so we know he was the Lord's. The person who is a Christian may have wobbly times, may go, may go back But they will always come back to the Lord. The Bible teaches us that the mark of our salvation is continuance in the faith. Let's then look at these verses. Sandwiched in between these two if clauses, there's a quotation from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. In contrast to Moses, who was faithful to God and God's purposes, The writer now is going to Moses' followers and he's saying in contrast to Moses who was faithful, his followers were unfaithful. And so in relation to this subject, once saved, always saved, what can we learn about these Israelites? Three things are true about the Israelites. Number one, they began well. We know the story, if you've been brought up in Sunday school, you know the story of how the angel of death passed through Egypt on that fateful night and the firstborn of the Egyptians were slaughtered. And then when the angel of death came to the Israelite homes, he saw the blood and he passed by and the firstborn was saved. And because of the uh, deaths in Egypt, the Pharaoh said, right, get those slaves out, let them go. And so there was an orderly exodus from Egypt. They escaped with an abundance of good things which the Egyptians gave them. They were glad to get rid of them. The pillar of cloud were told by day and the pillar of fire by night guided them. Then the Egyptians had a change of mind. There were our slaves. What are we going to do without these slaves? And so they went after them. They pursued them. Uh, And the Israelites found themselves with the Egyptians pursuing after them and in front of them was the Red Sea. What are they going to do? no weapons to fight that was the end of them but then God opened up the Red Sea and they passed through and when the Egyptians came up behind them the waters came over them and they drowned what a wonderful story what a great experience what a good God and they began to sing the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 God had protected them God had guided them they began well but then they began to grumble. The story, verse 7, verse 8, uh, there it starts to talk about what happened in Exodus chapter 17. We're told that the Israelites grumbled and they complained against God. If you go back to the original Psalm 95, the word, it refers there to Meribah and to Massah, two place names which mean rebellion and testing and that's what you have in verse 8. As you did in the rebellion during the time of testing. Uh, and in, the, in Psalm 95 and in Exodus 17 those, those are given place names. In, Sa- in Exodus 17:7 7 it says and he called the place Massa Meribah because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not. And that same word Meribah is used again at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 20. This was 40 years later. And it says in verse 9, For 40 years they saw what I did. What the writers of the scripture are telling us is that the first first year of the wilderness wandering, right through to the 40th year of the wilderness wandering, that it was a constant uh, pattern of their life. It was a way of life to rebel and to grumble against the Lord. So verse 10 says, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. And so verse 11, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It began well, it began to grumble. Why were they barred from the promised land? Thirdly, because they didn't believe the Lord. Now I want you to glance just at the whole passage here, and indeed into chapter 4. And you'll see repeatedly the words didn't believe or don't believe or no faith and disobedience. They feature highly. Look at verse 12. It's a reference there to unbelieving hearts. Verse 18. Those who disobeyed. Verse 19. Because of unbelief. Chapter 4 verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Chapter 4, verse 6, because of their disobedience. Two thoughts here are held together, two ideas, not believing and disobedience. They're virtually synonymous. They mean the same thing. And the interesting thing, and I'm indebted here to David Gooding, Is that the noun and the verb and the adjective in the Greek, which are translated by our words disobedience or disobey, they occur 29 times in the New Testament. And never once do they refer to a believer. Never once is the word disobedience here referring to a true believer. But it's always to those who reject the gospel. Let me give you some, some references. I'm not going to give you twenty nine. If you're taking notes, take down Ephesians two verse two, Ephesians five verse six, John three, thirty six, Acts fourteen and verse two, one Peter two, seven and eight, one Peter four and verse seventeen, Titus one and verse fifteen. I turn to Ephesians two just to give you a sample of that. Chapter two, verse two: As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient—clearly unbelievers. Chapter five, verse six: Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. I'll give you another one. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God and if it begins with us what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel clearly a different group of people to believers all of these references always refer to People who are unbelievers, they disobey the gospel. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer is saying that those who came out of Egypt were not truly the Lord's people. Look at verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those who Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Disobeyed unbelief. They were unbelievers. They began well. Then they began to grumble. But the reason they didn't enter the promised land is because at heart they did not believe the Lord. What are we to say about these people? If you read the actual narrative, for example, if you go back to Exodus 17. It says there that as soon as the trouble came, they quarreled and they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? In Hebrews, in Numbers chapter 11, Read the story of their desire for other things. You remember how they wanted to go back to Egypt and eat the meat and the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic? Now if you put those two together and listen to the words of Jesus in the parable of the sower. Do you remember the parable of the sower? There were four grounds. There was the pathway. There was the rocky ground. There was the thorns. And there was the good ground. And Jesus told this story and, he, and the disciples didn't understand and the disciples said tell us what these grounds mean. And in, act, in, in, in Mark chapter 4 in verse 16 it says others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy but since they have no root they only last a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word they quickly fall away. Compare Exodus 17 when trouble and persecution came. Verse 18, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. Compare Numbers 11. They desired other things. Israelites represents the rocky ground and the thorny ground. They are like the seeds that fell on those grounds. But then they fell away. They didn't bear fruit. They're not true believers. If any of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a long time since I've read it. But there was a guy called Mr. Pliable. And he caught up with Pilgrim. And he started walking with Pilgrim. And he was going well. And then he fell into the slough of despond. And immediately he complains and he goes home. For a short period of time he was walking with pilgrim. He was, if you like, a professor of Christianity. But he wasn't a true Christian and demonstrated that by going back. Now here's the key. Are you a true believer or just an empty professor? The doctrine stated once saved, always saved, is dangerous because it can give people a false confidence. The key question, the first part is all right, if you're saved, once saved, if you are saved, there's no problem, you will be secure. In Ulster there are many professors, but they may not possess the Lord. Hope we're well, not trampling anybody's toes here, but in some evangelical circles there's a great emphasis upon getting people to make decisions, responding to appeals, call people to come forward and receive Christ. They raise their hands, they go forward, they have a prayer, and then they are assured that they're Christians. And they go out and they think they're Christians. I've never used an appeal for two reasons. Number one, the percentage of people who go through, who, who, who go up, who respond to an appeal, never go on with the Lord. And a large percentage of people who have gone through that system are left with a false hope. But more importantly, I don't have an appeal because I don't find it in Scripture. It's an additional element that's added for the results business. It's not scriptural. What is scriptural is that the preaching of the word is the appeal and the Spirit of God takes the preaching of the word and applies it to the hearts of sinners. So let me ask the question again. Are you truly the Lord's child? Are you, are you saved? Have you repented? Have you believed in the Lord? If not, then verse 7 is appropriate today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart Holy Spirit is still speaking today come to him don't be satisfied with being a mere professor of Christianity don't be satisfied with having friends and colleagues who are in church with you don't be satisfied just with having a second hand uh, touch at Christianity. Come to Christ in repentance and trust Him and find Him tonight. But if, you, if I ask the question again and you say, Well, yes, I am the Lord's, what does this passage to say to me then? You say. Well the answer is found in verse 14 isn't it? It says we have come to share in Christ. We are the Lord's. If we hold firmly to the end of convents we had at first. The proof that we are the Lord's. Is that we are continuing in the faith. Let me put it like this. The ground of our salvation is not in us. The ground of our salvation is in what Christ has done on the cross. He paid the price. We have no price to pay. He paid the price. He took the punishment. He took the wrath of God. And that's the ground of my salvation. But the evidence that I am converted, that I am the Lord's, that you are the Lord's, is that you continue on the road of faith we hold firmly in our trust till the end we call this the perseverance of the saints so how do we persevere then there's a world outside there's the world there's the flesh and there's the devil and there's all kinds of allurements and there's all kinds of, of attractions in the world how do i persevere how do you persevere in a, in a world in which we live what's the prescription for perseverance Can I suggest from the passage briefly, there are four things here which constitute the prescription for perseverance. Number one, remember your calling. Look at verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in your heavenly calling. The writer is convinced that these people he's writing to are true believers. And he says to them, look, your brother's. You're part of the family of God. You've been brought into the family of God. You're in his house. You're holy. And holy doesn't mean they're better or more saintly than anybody else. Holy simply means they've been set apart. They are different. And they have received a calling from heaven. In other words, what the writer is saying to these people is, you are different to everyone else in the world. Because you have received a calling from the Lord. Do you remember what our catechism teaches? Effective calling is the work of God's Spirit. Who convinces us that we are sinful and miserable. Who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And who renews our wills. This is how he persuades and makes us able to receive Jesus Christ. Who is freely offered to us in the gospel. Verse 14. The confidence we had at the first Go back in your mind to the time when you trusted Christ. Why did you trust him? It was because the Holy Spirit was working in your heart. You were miserable in your sin. The Holy Spirit showed you the loveliness of Jesus, that he was the one that you needed. You heard that call, and that call effectively ushered you into Christ. First part of the prescription to persevere Is to remember your calling. You are now different to everyone else. Second prescription. Listen to scripture. Verse 7. Verse 15. Chapter 4 verse 7. Three times it's repeated. Today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Verse 12. See to it brothers that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart. That turns away from the living God to firmly hold on to the end, the confidence that we had of the first, we need to be under the ministry of the Word of God. That's normal Christianity. If we're not prepared for that, then we'll never grow and we'll never have confidence that we are the Lord's. We need to daily set aside some time to read and to pray. We need to take every opportunity given to us to hear the exposition of the word. We must listen to what the Spirit says to us in the Bible and respond in obedience. Now, in a sense, that's boring. You know that. We've been taught that from no size. How do you... God has given us the means of grace. It's reading your Bible and praying. And it's not rocket science. It's nothing new. You know that already. But if we want to persevere, we need... To read our Bibles and pray. There's no substitute. There's no way we can have be successfully transported to heaven. Other than daily reading the Bible and praying. I remember 20 years ago, maybe more, reading James Philip on Daniel. Three phrase that he used. What was the secret of Daniel's success? The secret of Daniel's success was reading his Bible and saying his prayers. That's the secret for us. Psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. There's power in the word. It acts like a hedge around us. It acts like a barrier against sin when we listen and obey the Bible. It gets into us. It's the secret power to keep us from sinning. Listen to the word. Third part of the prescription, encourage one another. Look at verse 13. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This is where the Christian fellowship is so essential. We're not meant to be isolated people. We're not meant to go it alone. We're brought into the family of God. and The family of God are our helpers. Again, think in terms of when you, when you became a Christian, in the analogy of, of Pilgrim's Progress, you entered through the narrow gate and you started on a windy, twisty pathway. Not easy. Bypath, meadow, people on the broad road shouting at you. Sin is deceitful. The devil tells us, promises wonderful things, but sin deceives. Never materialize. He never delivers. Well he does. He delivers death and destruction. And all kinds of problems. And that's when Christian people can be of help to each other. When we're walking along the narrow pathway together. We might be odd people together. We mightn't have the same kind of outlook in in many respects. But with two things in common, We've come to Christ and we're on our way to glory. We can be of help to each other. And when we meet together, we don't need to just talk about the weather, which we're good at. Talk about the Lord. How he's good to us. And encourage each other to help us to overcome the sins of the flesh and the sins of the world and the devil. I wonder, are we good at that? Are we good at encouraging each other? And the final thing is, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Look at verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Courage to fix our eyes on Jesus. Again, in chapter 12, we have the same encouragement. The word means to give attention and continuous observation of Him. It's the idea of focus, to apply the mind diligently, to look at Him. To be successful in any realm, it takes dedication and concentration and discipline and time. In the world of work, if you want to. Uh, uh, get on in science or discover something uh, the guys that have done that in the past they've focused on that and not alone and have been successful in the world of sport if you want to get on you have to focus and have your concentration on it i'm told when you play golf one of the things is you have to take dead aim you line yourself up you focus on where you're going And if people in sport and the people in world of work need to do that, how much more do we in the Christian pathway, when we've all kinds of struggles and opposition, how much more do we need to focus on our Saviour, the Apostle and the High Priest, the one sent by God to save us, and the one who goes to God to represent us. So when we take our eyes off Him, that's when we feel. Focus on Jesus. The prescription to persevere. Remember your calling. Listen to the word. Encourage each other. Focus on Jesus. I read a very interesting statistic not long ago. I don't know whether it refers to the USA or to the United Kingdom, but it was this that 68% of prescriptions that the doctor writes never actually get to the chemist. Now I find that amazing. That means only 32% take the doctor's advice. If I go to the doctor, not very often to go, but I'm going, I'm half dead, and I take his word. And if he gives me a bottle of medicine, I'll take it even if it's poison. I follow his instruction because I need something from him to make me better. I wonder, in terms of the spiritual perseverance in our Christian life, will we be like the 68 who don't bother? Or will we be like the 32% who daily take the prescription? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes the passages are difficult to understand and sometimes uh, difficult to accept. But we thank you, Lord, for this whole balance of scripture that you save us and you keep us. But the proof that we are yours is that we continue in the faith. Lord, Speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and may we be able to ascertain whether we're yours or just professing. And if we are yours, O God, in this sinful world in which we live, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to persevere, help us to focus on Jesus, to remember our calling, to listen to the word and to encourage each other so that we will together be able to walk this road and ultimately see you face to face. Write your word on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're